Trumanitarian. Daniel Cooper Bermudez, uh, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased we managed to set up this interview. You're the director of Hearts on Venezuela, a Venezuelan civil society organization advocating uh, for more attention on, on the humanitarian situation in in Venezuela, and you're also a member of uh, Civiles Derechos Humanos, a human rights organization in Venezuela. Why don't you begin by telling us a bit about the work of Hearts on Venezuela and uh, Civiles Derechos Humanos? Of course. Uh, so Hearts on Venezuela was born in 2019, uh, May 30th of uh, 2019, and there was a lot of misinformation about what was happening on the ground at the time. And I am bilingual. I am one of uh, a select number of people who who manage both English and Spanish very well in Venezuela amongst civil society. So I took advantage of that uh, position I had to translate and interpret text coming out from civil society so that people could have a perspective of what was happening on the ground directly from civil society. And from there, our goal, our objective has become broader and seeking to seeking to improve civil society's work in international advocacy, uh, especially in English language spaces. And with CVDs Derechos Humanos, my work consists in promoting civil society through a variety of mechanisms, mainly capacity building, network building, and improving advocacy capacities as well. So you founded uh, Hearts on Venezuela in 2019, but actually the crisis in Venezuela begins a couple of years before. So could you take us back to the beginning, describe how the crisis unfolded, and then what led to the need to found Hearts on Venezuela. Absolutely. So I was in 2016, for me, is a key year in Venezuela for many reasons. The mass migration phenomenon had already begun, and that was the year that, for example, Ban Ki-moon, at the time the UN Secretary General, described what was happening in Venezuela as a humanitarian crisis. And local organizations had for several years already been denouncing that we were going through a humanitarian a humanitarian crisis. And in, specifically in 2016, we already started calling it a complex humanitarian emergency. And in 2016, the Venezuelan people tried to push forth a presidential referendum, which was shot down by the judicial power, which is under the control of the executive power under the the Maduro regime. And that year, leading human rights organization Provea declared that it it was the beginning of the dictatorship after all of the human rights violations during 2014 that continued in 2015. And in 2016, when the democratic, uh, the democratic ways, means of, of resolving the political crisis were blocked by, by the government, that was a, a key year. And then in 2017, mass protests began once again, and the constitutional, the, the attorney general at the time, which was aligned with the Chavista government uh, for all of her career, said that the that there was a breakdown in the constitutional order. 
and that also uh, caused a lot of protests. And uh, those were key years for for Venezuela. And I also think it's important to underline that all this happened before sanctions. The first economic sanctions against Venezuela happened in 2017. Mid mid 2017, they were announced, and they didn't start getting applied until later that same year. So in terms of the complexity of uh, what happened, we call it a complex humanitarian emergency because it wasn't caused by a war and it wasn't caused by a natural disaster. It was a man-made multifaceted crisis that uh, devolved from the breakdown and decline of power structures that order society, rule of law, democratic governance, grand corruption, crimes against humanity, militarization uh, are were all elements that were present before sanctions ever happened. Um, so in back then in 20 since 2016, I was actually working with another human rights organization, local uh, human rights organization in Maracaibo, Venezuela, which is the country's second largest uh, city. And at that time, we were more focused on defending human rights. But as the crisis became worse, we decided that we also had to, we, we had an important role in documenting the humanitarian crisis in our city and in our state. And well, I'd like to talk more, more about the role of human rights organizations also in denouncing the, the humanitarian emergency and how, how it, the networked uh, dynamic of civil society was part of what helped elicit a humanitarian response. So you are a human rights activist prior to the crisis. You, you see this accelerating breakdown of society and you begin to realize we must also get involved in humanitarian affairs or in, in humanitarian action. What was your first contact with the international humanitarian system and what, what was that experience like? Well, the first contact with the international humanitarian system must have been in perhaps 2018, which was already two years into the complex humanitarian emergency. And a member of OCHA uh, gave a workshop on the humanitarian architecture to a room, room full of civil society organizations during uh, an event that we called the Human Rights Fair that we had been organizing organizing since 2016. And so it, within human rights spaces, the, the space was also always very inclusive organ, of organizations that did humanitarian work as well, development work, democracy work. Uh, the Venezuelan civil society has had a very inclusive uh, culture, uh, which which has been very beneficial in very many ways. Mm -hmm. So it begins with with, a, with with training on the humanitarian architecture, sort of understanding the system, these are the sort of actors who may engage with Venezuela. And and then what, what happens afterwards? Yeah, we, we really didn't know anything about the humanitarian system, starting with the humanitarian principles, humanitarian architecture. Uh, and at the time, we feared criminalization due to denouncing or even learning more about the humanitarian system. So I remember starting to learn about clusters, for example, and thinking it was, you know, uh, 
something I couldn't really talk to people about because the government denied the crisis and it, protests were criminalized. So it, the, the context for us as people who were learning about the humanitarian system was of very high constraints. And I remember in 2016, for example, we organized a, a small protest uh, calling for for humanitarian assistance to, to enter the country. And we were very fearful of, of what could happen. Luckily, we were okay. Um, but little by little, the there was a, between 2016 and 2018, 2019, uh, there were there was still a, a very significant gap between uh, civil society and the United Nations system, and it wasn't really until the the system began its operation in Venezuela since two thousand and nineteen, especially that uh, civil society has had a more direct contact with actors, and I think it's also important to. Uh, highlight that Venezuela is a very centralized country. So a lot of influence and movement happens in the capital city of Caracas, while without Caracas actually being the worst off territory in the country. And in other, in other states and cities throughout the country, there is very much less access to uh, people, authority figures within the, the UN agencies or uh, and the people who are on the ground representing the UN agencies in the different regions of the country have less decision-making power uh, to, to organize the response for, for local communities. So by the time you're introduced to the thinking that, that we sort of have in the international humanitarian system, you have actually got a couple of years of experience of, of carrying out humanitarian action in, in Venezuela. Was there something that surprised you? Was it like, or was it like, yeah, this totally makes sense to me that, of course, these are the principles, or it's like, why the heck do we need clusters? So what, what, was, what was the reaction, actually, from you? Well, so the, the, we started learning about the humanitarian system when we didn't have access to it in Venezuela from Colombia, uh, because the the we knew about Colombia's response, uh, it was very public. There are very good resources about it online. There's an entire wiki about the Colombian humanitarian architecture, how clusters work, how they're organized, uh, and that was a very important resource for our country. And since the migration phenomenon what elicited a humanitarian response before local, before we were, we were able to do anything uh, within Venezuela. We learned from, from those systems uh, responding to the migration and refugee phenomenon. Uh, so, so that uh, process of starting to work with people internationally, especially in Colombia, was, was very important for, for civil society. And we were just really um, worried and concerned that the situation only got worse and worse. And the UN system was not uh, responding on the ground and the government continued to deny the crisis. So for many years, that was civil society's main object. One of, one of civil society's main objective is just to get the humanitarian actors on the ground to to have the operations begin on the ground within Venezuela. And so this is where Hearts on Venezuela comes into the picture, I guess. 
Yeah, in 2019. So 2019 was also a key year for the humanitarian response. Because in 2019, there is very evident uh, political turmoil. And, well, there's, by this time, we, we already manage what the humanitarian principles are a lot better than we did in, in 2016. And, uh, you know, some of these things in, in the, in the, on February 23rd, there's this incident in the border with Colombia uh, regarding humanitarian aid and how it was used in a political manner, um, which has been very unfortunate and has carried out very um, important, uh, a very important negative perception about how aid is politicized in the country that does not correspond to the reality of the humanitarian response. The humanitarian response and people on the ground committed to it are absolutely committed to the to the to the humanitarian principles and at that moment it seemed like and there was a lot of stigma around humanitarian aid and assistance being used in a politicized manner and that was also something that that um created a negative a negative point in in the humanitarian narrative but i think the the main issue has mostly always been humanitarian access constraints imposed by the government itself. There was denial of the situation until uh, 2018, 2019. And since then, uh, the the access has been very limited still. Yeah, it's a paradox, isn't it? We, we are able to stand at the border with trucks and say, oh, let these trucks come through and, and somehow link very closely uh, humanitarian aid to to regime change, something which, which of course is, is highly unfortunate, as you said, and, and, and uh, for me is a deep uh, disrespect for the work being carried out by people inside Venezuela and making their lives more, more difficult. It's one thing we are we're able to, from the outside, impose, uh, impose sanctions, but it just strikes me that we're talking about three years where basically what the international system could do was do a training course. That's not very much. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all. And the the focus was on responding to the migration and refugee crisis um, uh, for for years before that. And and it was actually uh, for years it was incredibly frustrating for civil society and not only civil society but just generally the Venezuelan population is very skeptic of the United Nations and uh, humanitarian agencies because uh, we would denounce what was happening and the system seemed not to believe us uh, or to not be active around constructing a solution to what was happening. Uh, so, and the the only thing that ended up eliciting a response was the millions of people living leaving to other countries all over South America. So it was when foreign governments throughout Latin America got involved and it was starting to impact their economies, their cities, that they that the the international system started to respond because they didn't believe us internally, but they started believing uh, foreign governments. And by that time, you know, when you have four million, three million people outside of the country, it's already late. You know, there's a lot of suff human suffering happening that was ignored. And uh, and that's that's still very much part of what's happening the situation i think uh 
it's extremely uh, important to note that even with the humanitarian response since 2019, it's only gotten worse. The situation has only gotten worse. So for the first humanitarian response plan for July to December 2019 was actually published in August. And uh, that plan established that there were 7 million people in need. And today, ACAPS uh, estimates that it's around 14.8 million people. And poverty and extreme poverty have only risen. Uh, so the the impact of the humanitarian response has not yet been uh, respective to the scale and severity of what is happening. And actually, the 2021 humanitarian response plan mentioned is constructed to respond to uh, continues to say that it's uh, seven million people in need when the World Food Program itself established that only in food insecurity, only regarding food insecurity, 9.3 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance in, in food aid. So there's an incongruence in the statistics being used to build those plans, which are already underfunded. So uh, I think the civil society definitely calls for what more technical and financial cooperation from the UN agencies and, and international organizations. And actually, I think one of the things that was very valuable were the, was the work of international organizations that already had a presence in Venezuela and some other international organizations that were willing to get involved early on. So for example, uh, the Jesuit Service for Refugees already was providing services to Colombian refugees who had left to Venezuela because of the, the, the armed conflict in Colombia. And they were able to not only report and document what was happening and had direct contact already with the United Nations system, but were also able to provide direct assistance to communities that, that received Colombian refugees. So they weren't uh, so they started not only attending Colombian refugees, but they were also providing assistance to the entire community because everybody in that same community needed aid. So basically, we're in the situation where you have escalating needs inside Venezuela. You have a government which is, uh, let's say, very assertive and doesn't uh, give a lot of space for humanitarian action and and. You have a UN system that is heavily constrained by this and uh, and able to do only very little. And that's probably the way it is. So what can you do and what can Hearts on Venezuela do? To, what are the buttons you push to try to change this? From Hearts on Venezuela, for example, what we have done with the inter with uh, interpretation and translation especially is make reports that were only available in Spanish accessible in English. And we're also now currently in a phase of working with uh, building networks around similar issues going on in different countries, especially throughout the global south. So right now we're in processes of getting in touch with organizations, local civil 
civil uh, society organizations in places like Syria and Haiti to learn from their direct experiences, not only with how they work, but how they interact, how, how they have interacted with the United Nations systems, what has worked for them, what has not worked for them, and how to perhaps even join forces to put pressure on UN agencies to do a better job. Because what we have seen in Venezuela is that these aren't issues exclusive to Venezuela. Um, there is the famous Petrie report and Rosenthal reports on the situations on Myanmar and Sri Lanka, which created the rights of front uh, framework for, for all UN agencies. And we still see how quiet diplomacy is it, practiced by United Nations agencies is part of the culture uh, in Venezuela on the ground. So we see, for example, how human rights organizations who want to be, be, start doing humanitarian work are excluded from the space. And uh, that happened to organizations which I've worked with, which were not allowed into clusters, even though they were doing work on food insecurity, for example, and sometimes being the only organizations documenting what, would ha what was happening with food insecurity in a certain area. And likewise with humanitarian organizations, which were UN agencies actively discouraged from denouncing human rights violations of themselves, of partners, or of communities that they were attending. So that's very much contrary to, to what the UN Charter represents to start with, and specifically the Rights Up Front framework, which was set up to avoid these kinds of problems. So you have uh, limited protection perspectives from people working on the ground still. And so you could argue that if the UN spoke up more, if there was uh, more pushback from, well, not just the U UN, but from international humanitarian organizations present on the ground, that they would be probably shut down quite quickly and, and chucked out of the country. So would that be better? That would definitely not be better. We we want the agencies and the international organizations to to be present, but we know that they can do more, and we've pressured them to do more. And when we've pressured them to do more, they there there has been a positive response uh, from from agencies and from international organizations. So, for example, er earlier this year, uh, there. Five humanitarian workers were arrested for implementing a cash transfer program, and their local implementing partners with UNAIDS, with UNHCR, uh, among other UN agencies historically, and the nobody in the UN agencies said anything publicly. So, if humanitarian workers, if local humanitarian workers feel that they're not even protected by the UN bodies uh, that that they directly cooperate with, uh, there aren't. You you need to construct the basic conditions in order to do the work, uh, and if you don't construct those basic conditions to do the work, then there won't be a humanitarian response, anyways. And that's something that's affecting all kinds of organizations, humanitarian organizations as well as uh, any sort of civil society organization, is that. We are also victims of the complex humanitarian emergency. We don't have electricity. We don't have water in our homes. And that is a limiting factor. And especially if uh, with, with uh, the, the economic crisis also affects us. So we also see that 
uh, as the situation becomes worse and worse, humani the humanitarian organizations also suffer from internal migration of their staff, which affects the capacity to, to, to work. So I think the, the, it's not only incumbent on international organizations and UN agencies, but the broader international community, including the Security Council and the Secretary General, must do more to pressure the Venezuelan state into uh, opening the humanitarian space and, and protecting civic space, because if not the institutional and community mechanisms to have a more holistic or comprehensive or structural resolution to the humanitarian crisis, which, which is a complex humanitarian crisis, it's politically induced, then, then you know, it'll only get worse. So if I get you right, uh, the basic strategy behind Hearts on Venezuela is provide information, data, translate the, the, the Spanish sources into English so that we have more powerful evidence about the situation that we can use to, to push international community uh, network, as you say, with, with uh, humanitarians from Syria, from Haiti, from other places, learn lessons on how to maneuver. And in a sense... All of this is to protect the humanitarian space inside Venezuela. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our main goal is that the humanitarian emergency ends, uh, along with uh, human rights violations, uh, which are the two, uh, some, two of the main issues affecting our population with a lot of uh, root causes uh, that, that must be addressed by them. And I'd also like to talk more about what CBD's Derechos Humanos does. And they have uh, an amazing project called Um Venezuela or Hume Venezuela. And you can uh, access uh, humevenezuela.com in which we have or been organizing with uh, civil society actors in all branches of society and all kinds of populations working on analyzing the, the education sector, the health sector, the food sector, um, and so on, and evaluating the response as civil society and evaluating the complexity, the, the factors of complexity. So <clears throat> we have, because there is such little information provided by the state and UN agencies are not uh, usually transparent with the, the information that they're collecting. So often the humanitarian needs overview, which are, have, are fundamental in constructing the, the plans are not published or agreements between, for example, the uh, United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights that currently has a presence in Venezuela. The agreement with the Venezuelan state has not been published either. Uh, so civil society still has an important role in just showing what the data is. And in whom Venezuela, we have our own civil, civil society constructed data on the impact on society based on, uh, on all sources available, both UN agencies and civil society, along with the effectiveness of the response and the factors that involve complexity. So rule of law protection, human rights violations, the factors that are root causes of, of, the, of the emergency. So as you speak, uh, you, you have a very strong focus on, on the whole data side of things, the assessment, documenting the impact, monitoring the response. And uh, to what extent 
And, and what's occurring to me is uh, to, to what extent are civil society organizations themselves involved directly in the response? What, what is the role there? Apart from, from this accountability role, ensuring the evidence is there, how much is it uh, handing out cash and blankets themselves? Yeah, there is an important sector of civil society that's of national civil society that does that. And that was also a, an important uh, learning curve that organizations had to undergo. So there's organizations like Azul Positivo or Acción Solidaria, which for years had been addressing the HIV ep epidemic in Venezuela. And these organizations were uniquely prepared to, to begin working with vulnerable communities as uh, HIV Uh, people with HIV are, are often members of uh, vulnerable communities or, or uh, people with HIV who are members of vulnerable communities already required some sort of uh, aid or assistance. So they already had uh, good organizational practices and were able to adapt and work with UNICEF, work with UNHCR, work with UNAIDS to organize the response for for other sectors of society and, uh, you know, bring, uh, broaden their scope of work. And Acción Solidaria, for example, went from uh, being mostly uh, HIV, uh, an organization that attended people with HIV, and now was a member of the humanitarian country team for, for several years, especially the, the first initial years, uh, and helped coordinate UN agencies and international organizations together with different civil society organizations that could become humanitarian, uh, that could adopt humanitarian work and have become humanitarian actors. And that's something that has become uh, usual within the civil society, uh, within the civic space. Uh, and I think a really beautiful example of this is the network that we created in since 2017 in the state of Sulia, where uh, the organization where, which I used to work with uh, was based CODES. And we created a human rights network there in which uh, the only requirement was that the organizations to, to participate, that, that the organizations uh, had a human rights framework to their work. So it didn't matter if, if it was focused on mental health or on HIV and AIDS or on environmental work or on, on women's rights. So through that network, we were able to strengthen all of the member organizations. So now women's rights organizations uh, became a part of the humanitarian response with uh, United Nations uh, Population Fund or UNICEF to go to vulnerable communities and provide gender-based uh, perspectives on, on violence or to provide trainings on how to migrate or how not to migrate and for women especially to, to be aware of the risks of uh, human trafficking, for example. And another organization which grew immensely through the network is an organization called Rehabilitarte, which originally was just a group of young people that worked from the psychiatric hospital in, in the city. And little by little, the organization grew so much that they now work with UN agencies to provide, or, and international organizations to provide free uh, mental health um, services on the phone during the pandemic uh, for 
thousands thousands of people. Uh, so there's been a progressive um, institutional capacity building that was facilitated by networks of civil society that were diverse and usually usually begun by organization by human rights organizations that understood the importance of having of uh, building the capacities of other other organizations and for that to happen also uh, with a human rights framework let's talk a little bit about the the humanitarian country team so It begins with a training course, as you say. Somebody from Ocha comes in and, and does a training course uh, on the margins of a human rights uh, conference or, or, or meeting. And then how, how does that evolve into a humanitarian country team and, and who sits on it? Yeah, so the humanitarian country team has UN agencies uh, involved. There are usually three national organizations uh, that that sit on them the sit sit on the humanitarian country team and then there's some international organizations that participate along with the Venezuelan state and as I said the the UN bodies but before that the the there wasn't a, a humanitarian country team there was something called ECA which was a sort of uh, unofficial coordination uh, for the response that before the the Venezuelan state allowed for a humanitarian country team. So already, even without the permission of the Venezuelan state, there were already being uh, moves being made to begin the response uh, that was contrary sometimes to the Venezuelan state's wishes or or they weren't totally on board with the cluster is being formed. So still that that's still something that affects us. So uh, the World Food Program is the leader in the logistics cluster worldwide. And they were just given access to Venezuela this year in 2021, despite, uh, despite uh, malnutrition uh, amongst children, especially being actively and repeatedly reported on since 2016 and 2015. So we start with a training course, and then organically we get elements from civil society to begin forming some kind of informal coordination, something. And slowly a space is carved out whereby the government accepts more and more humanitarian presence. You're able to establish a country team, you're able to establish clusters, and slowly, slowly more and more actors are able to establish themselves and we have more or less today, if I hear it correctly, a traditional humanitarian architecture with clusters, humanitarian country team with the presence of the, the government and so on and so forth. Yeah, five years since the beginning of the of the complex humanitarian emergency. Mm-hmm. When you speak to your colleagues from Syria and Haiti, What are the things where you go, yeah, that's what we thought as well. That's how we experienced it. And, and what are the differences with, with uh, Venezuela? Well, I think something that we understand that we have in common is that the UN won't resolve our, our problems for us. And the UN also operates in a way that we have to demand things from the system. So if we don't demand things from the system, we won't get a better response. 
Um, and that is something that we have learned, you know, in Haiti, evidently, there were significant issues with the humanitarian response. And in Syria, the civil society organizations have had to constantly demand for a stronger response on, on behalf of uh, the United Nations. And, and that's the same case in, in other countries as well. And that's not something that we that we only exclusively learned from the humanitarian experience, but already we were learning that with the human rights experience is that we have to demand action by the different actors involved in order to have a response. And I think that's part of what continues to occur is that Venezuelan civil society, and especially in, in uh, English language spaces, does, still doesn't have enough access to key actors and key decision-making uh, authorities in order to continue to elicit a stronger response by the system. And that's something that we're working on with Hearts on Venezuela and many other organizations are working on in different spaces. And international organizations have also started becoming a lot more involved in that effort as well. And do you see a, a tension between the operational role that the Venezuelan civil society organizations play and this advocacy pushing, demanding role? You say so. So if you, if suddenly eighty percent of your budget comes from a UN organization, maybe you're a bit more careful to say, "Hey guys, this needs to to get better." Do, do you see that tension? I do not see that tension uh, because. There is enough diversity within civil society that we have organizations that can dedicate themselves more to reporting, to monitoring, to evaluating the response itself, uh, and holding UN actors accountable, and other folks who are more dedicated to the operations. And the beautiful thing about how we have learned to work in Venezuela in, in civil society is that those different types of organizations are part of the same networks. We know each other. We are constantly in communications with each other. If something happens that one organization can't publicly say or doesn't want to publicly say, it communicates it to other organizations which are able to to take those steps. So so that is some that is a, definitely a strength of, of civil society. And I think a lesson to be learned from Venezuela is that the more connected civil society is Uh, and the more connected humanitarian organizations with different aims and objectives and methods of working are, the stronger the entire space will become. I couldn't agree more. And I think we have to be so careful when we chase the optimizing operations through coordination that we don't kill the diversity that actually enables us to function in very difficult settings. I think I think there's a There's a trade-off there that we are not always fully aware of. Yeah, and as I was mentioning before with the rights up front uh, framework is that when UN agencies come into the on the on the ground, it has to be has to learn how to take advantage of what exists um, because in different countries, and I think Venezuela may even be privileged in the sense of you know, having been a mid, almost a middle-income country and having a broad professional uh, base of people to work with. Uh, and and that strengthened the, the ability of building organizations and building 
local capacities and they were already local capacities existing. But in the case of Venezuela, even though we, we had those capacities, those are also quickly diminishing with mass migration and just the affectation of, of professionals as well in the you know, lack of water and electricity. You know, it affected us. In Maracaibo, for example, we uh, had months on end with 12 to 16 hours of electricity uh, cuts daily. So it's almost impossible <laughs> to organize a response when, when your basic needs aren't being met. So here we are five years in. Would you say we have a functioning humanitarian architecture in Venezuela? Yeah, we do have a functioning humanitarian architecture in Venezuela. We may think, oh, you know, five years is too long to get there, and whatever, but but it's there. So, so what's the project now moving forward? What what, what are you going to focus on? So, the project now moving forward is that the humanitarian response be adequate in terms of the scale and severity of what is going on. So it's great to have the humanitarian architecture, but we're seeing that the situation is only getting worse. And a humanitarian response is evidently supposed to make the situation better. <laughs> uh, and if it's not making the situation better, then the response isn't being effective yet. Uh, so an important step was just getting the humanitarian architecture within the country to get it operating. But there needs to be more commitment from member states, from from UN member states, from and donor states, to basically take the risk with Venezuela and uh, increase both financial and technical cooperation and more commitment from international organizations as well, because there are still capacities within civil society to rebuild institutions, key institutions to to uh, address the structural issues at hand. But the more we wait and the more prolonged the crisis becomes, the harder it will be and the more significant the long-term and chronic consequences on the population will be. And we're already seeing that, and it's well known that child malnutrition has an effect on, on generations within the country. So that's what we're trying to avoid. So what you have described so far for me is, is, a, is a fantastic example of civil society holding the, the system responsible, pushing, carving out the space, Uh, making sure the 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 UN delivers, uh, advocating with the government, advocating with the international uh, society. But then, before we started this interview, you told me something else that 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 I don't know how to fit into this exactly. You said I also work on TikTok, and so just explain to me how the heck does TikTok fit into this? Yeah, so we also civil society is not. And sometimes, maybe not even mostly, um, addresses work with the international system, and we've have have had to work with the international system because uh, the Venezuelan state won't respond to the people's needs. But that means that civil society still has to speak to itself and uh, engage more members of the Venezuelan population. So. 
for example, with, with uh, Hearts on Venezuela, we started creating a series of uh, and short animated videos in, in the TikTok style in which we talked about toxic polarization and how it affects our ability as Venezuelans to reach agreements uh, because there are extreme political positions on some sides that, that constantly shoot them down or create obstacles for potential agreements to be made. So there's an amazing group right now called Foro Civico, uh, or Civic Forum, which has been organizing sectoral agreements. So instead of trying to solve all of the issues at once in a political negotiation, to start working on issue by issue, because we can't, we can't um, make all of the country's progress depend on a single negotiations process that has been a faulty way to think about it. So right now with the, the COVID-19 vaccine and the COVAX mechanism, there is a, a roundtable that with multiple sectors of, the, of uh, political society as well as civil society represented there working towards uh, getting vaccines into Venezuela, as well as other areas of, of negotiations. So that's something that we addressed in, in this animated, in this short animated video on toxic polarization. And we're currently preparing uh, two different series on, on these videos on, that, that address, you know, the pain that comes with the humanitarian emergency, because we talk about a humanitarian emergency and all these more technical concepts, but at the base of humanitarian work is the dignity of people and the protection of people. And when we talk about the dignity of people, we're talking about heartbreak. We're talking about not being able to access basic needs and the suffering that comes with that. Uh, so we're creating a, a, a short a short series on how love has been affected during during the migration phenomenon in particular. And there's an, a, a series of videos and a bunch of Instagram accounts, for example, that are exclusively posting videos of family reunions after years of people not seeing each other. Uh, and sometimes those kinds of videos allow for the Venezuelan population to heal or to change the way we think or respond or become more involved or become a little bit braver because we think we feel that we're not alone when when other people are expressing the feeling of what has happened to us. Um, and the second series that we're working on is one emphasizing the daily solidarity that is practiced by Venezuelans, which is part of why the country hasn't ended, finished, you know, its breakdown. Because people during the pandemic, for example, during the pandemic, there have been innumerable GoFundMe's organized by families to finance the the recuperation or the medical attention of people who who have had COVID nineteen, and. Uh, they they are constantly funded by the people's communities and sometimes strangers who would decide to 
fund other people's medical attention without sometimes even knowing the person. Or another example is during during the pandemic, there has been uh, very grave gasoline shortages. And in a, the city of Barquisimeto, the people who ride motorcycles organize themselves to transport renal patients to their dialysis in the clinics because they couldn't get there because there was there wasn't gasoline and there wasn't tra public transportation working working uh, and these little examples of solidarity for Venezuelans can mean the difference between life and death and in a way it's how the Venezuelan population is constructing its own humanitarian response when the Venezuelan state has failed and when uh, when the UN agencies haven't been able to to reach the population yet. Um, and I wouldn't want to glorify these forms of response either. It's, you know, survival mechanisms too, and uh, it should have never gotten this far. But it is because of these daily examples of solidarity that people survive. Daniel, Thank you so much for coming on Humanitarian. It's truly painful what's happening to, to your country. But I, I want to, to thank you for your work and what's so impressive about it is your, 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 the range of issues. You focus on from the structural issues to getting the right humanitarian architecture in place, but then also to focus on, on those daily acts of solidarity from people who are everyday humanitarians. And I think dealing with a crisis as, as difficult and complex as Venezuela, you can't afford to divorce yourself from any of those uh, of any of those strategies. And and so I think it, it's just fantastic and impressive to see the work you're doing with with Hearts on Venezuela, and and uh, all the best for for your future work. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on, uh, on on this wonderful podcast. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor for the truth. You've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>